Well, good morning, Grace Lutheran Church. Great to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Lee Humarian, and a few people have been asking me uh, when Katie and I are, are heading out. Uh, we, in two weeks, we move out of our place on April 18th for about six weeks of training. Um, and then we come back, spend some time with family, uh, and then in June, we're going to be commissioned here. June 11th, we get commissioned here at Grace Lutheran Church. And sometime around June 12th is when we actually depart for the field uh, in Ukraine to be missionaries. Um, and so we're excited about that. My last day in the sound booth will be Easter Sunday, which will be a, certainly a bittersweet time. But uh, I'm thankful for my church family here. Uh, Katie and I both are just thankful to, to know you all and to have gotten to spend. I've been here for over seven years now, and so it's been a really, uh, man, a really huge part of my life and my development um, uh, just in, in my journey uh, following Jesus. So thank you all. Uh, before all that happens, though, we get to look at the story of Solomon this morning. And throughout 2017, we've been going through uh, the book, The Story, which is basically the Bible put into to narrative form, into story form from start to finish. And this week, we, we are in chapter 13, which centers around the, the story, the life of Solomon. And I think typically in the church, when we think of Solomon, we often think about his great wisdom. And perhaps the two most well-known stories about Solomon are, reveal to us his great wisdom. When he encounters the two women fighting over the one baby and, and wisely discerns which one is the true mother. And then when the queen of Sheba comes at, to, to test his great wisdom uh, and Solomon, gets, and Solomon uh, blows her expectations out of the water. And we have, we have these two stories about Solomon that we're probably most familiar with, and, and truly Solomon was a deeply wise person, certainly the wisest man uh, in the entire world during his day and age. But those two stories paint an incomplete picture of Solomon's life as a whole. And that's why, as we've been in the story, or if you've been following along with the story Bible reading plan, that's why we're reading big chunks of scripture every single week. The purpose is so that we can take a step back and see the bigger picture behind these, the, the narratives that we see uh, in the Bible. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be looking at a, couple, a few key moments in Solomon's life, and then we're going to kind of put them together so that we can see the bigger picture, the wider theme that's happening. And we're going to highlight three key things in Solomon's life. And this is how they do three in Europe. So I'm giving a little practice this morning. So we're, we're looking at three key moments in Solomon's life. We're looking at the beginning of Solomon's life and reign over Israel. And then we're going to be looking at Solomon's faithfulness in building the temple. And then three, we're going to be looking at the demise of Solomon when he turns his heart away from God. And I believe the bigger picture that we're going to see this morning in the life of Solomon is that the way that we live really matters. And furthermore, I believe that we'll see that the way we live is ultimately a matter of the heart, a matter of how our heart is postured toward God. We're going to read a few select passages this morning, but I'd like to start out in 1 Chronicles 28, which is uh, the second to last chapter in 1 Chronicles. That's on page 296 in your pew Bible. And there was a misprint. I, I made a mistake when I gave the office the, the reading. Um, it's, we're not reading 29, we're reading 28. I told them that I was reading 28 all the way through the, to the end, but that's, uh, that, was, that was my mistake, so apologies there. So 1 Chronicles 28, we're starting in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is David speaking at the end of his life. Of all of my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. 
God said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unwavering, unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws, as is being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and, and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Let's skip down to verse 20. David also said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. The divisions of the priests and Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God and every willing person skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. And then verse, verse one of chapter one of Second Chronicles says, Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For the Lord God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, we're gonna be looking at three different parts of Solomon's life this morning. The beginnings of Solomon's life and reign over Israel. Solomon's faithfulness in building the temple of the Lord and then the demise of Solomon when he turns his heart away from God. I believe the bigger picture we're gonna see is that in the life of Solomon is that the way we live really matters and that the way we live is ultimately a matter of the heart. And this first text that we read enters us into the beginning of Solomon's reign. And so before David passes the crown onto his son, he admonishes him to follow all of the commands of God. And as we just read, David passing the torch to Solomon was David following through with God's request to make Solomon the next king over Israel. And I believe it's important for us to remember where Solomon came from. Because Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba, the woman that David committed adultery with and subsequently murdered her husband to try to wash it away. And Pastor Chris talked about this last week, that amidst this terrible sin of David, where he in one swoop breaks three of the Ten Commandments, at least three, David certainly experiences consequences for his sin, but amidst David's true confession and repentance of his sin, God does what he did back when we talked about Ruth together last month. God weaves redemption out of this terrible situation that David put himself in. And so Solomon's very existence alone is a symbol of God's redemption, of bringing light from darkness. But how much more redeeming is it out of all the children that David has, God picks Solomon as David's successor to the throne. And would it have been better had, had David not sinned? Absolutely. But despite David's sinful actions, God takes David's weakness in those moments and weaves it into goodness. And so David obeys God's command to make Solomon the next king. And so before he dies, David says the words that we, that we read in the scripture. He tells Solomon to live for God and for God alone. And in 1 Kings 2, David says to do this so that Solomon may succeed in all he does. 
So shortly after this, David dies. Solomon becomes king. And so Solomon begins his life as the ruler of Israel. And right away in the next chapter of Kings, 1 Kings 3, we see, we get a picture of Solomon's heart. We get a picture of how Solomon wants to live. 1 Kings 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. This was at the beginning of Solomon's reign. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he gave a feast for all his court. So right away here, in the beginning of Solomon's reign, we see that the desire of Solomon's heart is to obey David, his father, to completely live for God. He doesn't ask for money or long life. He doesn't ask for more power. He asks for a discerning and wise heart so that he can best govern God's people. This is a clear glimpse of Solomon's heart. Because I think if somebody asked any of us Individually, what the one thing, if we won the lottery and we could do one thing, what that thing would be would be a glimpse into our hearts, to a glimpse of the, things that, the thing that really, truly matters in our life. And so God does this to Solomon. He asks Solomon, what do you want? What's, what's the one thing that you want? And based on Solomon's answer, we see that Solomon's heart was in a humble, obedient place. Solomon here wants to live for God and to rule God's people well. That's the desire of his heart, the root of where his heart is at at this moment. And so God grants Solomon great wisdom. Not only that, that, but God also gives Solomon what he didn't ask for, great wealth and great honor, so much so, so that there would be no one else like him in the rest of the world. God says, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Solomon's heart is evident in this text. And God says, if your heart stays this way, if your heart stays obedient to me and my commands, I will give you a long life. And so it's clear here in 1 Kings 3 that the way Solomon wanted to live was ultimately a matter of his heart, a matter of the way his heart was postured towards God in obedience and humility. And so in the beginning of Solomon's life, in the beginning of his reign, we see 
based on the choices that he made, that the way he lived matters. And ultimately, the way that he lived, those choices that he made stemmed out of the posture of his heart towards God and towards God's will. And we see that same humble and obedient posture in Solomon's faithfulness in building God's temple. 1 Kings 6, starting in verse 11, says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon, As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all of my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Verse 14 says, So Solomon built the temple and completed it. And that one single verse there summarizes several chapters we have of the details covering the building of the temple of God. And Solomon doesn't cut any corners when he's building it. I mean, everything is crafted beautifully and intentionally. He brings in the best people to to make the best quality temple for the Lord. He brings in items that David had dedicated. And then finally, the last thing he does, he brings, the priests bring in the Ark of the Covenant and set it in the inner room in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And when the priests walk out, the text says that a cloud came, a thick cloud came down representing the Shekinah glory or the settling of God's presence in the temple. I mean, this is God affirming the work that Solomon did. God coming and his presence resting in the temple. It says it's so thick that the priests can't get any work done because they can't see anything. So God's presence is, is, is settling in the temple that Solomon so beautifully built. And so after this, Solomon prays a beautiful prayer of dedication to the Lord, testifying of God's faithfulness and admitting that no temple, not even the earth, can really contain God. But when Solomon finishes praying in 2 Chronicles 7.1, it says that fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that the glory of God continue to fill the temple. And Solomon and Israel continue, continue worshiping God for days. They have a feast. And these actions continue to show us that Solomon's heart here is still postured with humility, with respect, with obedience towards God and God's will. And God's will that his people would serve him and follow him. So after Solomon finishes the temple, the Lord appears to him. In 2 Chronicles 7, starting at 11, it says, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, Solomon, If you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, 
and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. The temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. And so wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice for Solomon if the story just ended right here? I mean, we, we've seen the goodness that comes when Solomon lives fully devoted, his heart fully postured towards God and God's will. And this is essentially the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. And it, it's, it's the pinnacle of Solomon. I mean, Solomon has had great success. It really doesn't get any better than this. And for Solomon, he has everything he could ever want. But as we read in 1 Kings 11, we see that the posture of Solomon's heart has changed. And thus the way he lives has also changed. So 1 Kings 11, verse one, starting in verse 1, King Solomon, however, throughout all of his splendor, all of the good things he has done, says King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts towards their God. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. And that's just, that's a ridiculous number, right? Yeah, a thousand foreign women. And then in verse 9 it says, The Lord therefore became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, since this is the posture of your heart now, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for, your, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Verse 14, then the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite from the royal line of Edom. So Solomon turns his heart away from God and to idols. And even though this is just a page turn for us, I mean, in chapter, 1 Kings chapter 10, we, we read about this, all the splendor and all the awesome things that, that Solomon does. And then we, we turn the page to chapter 11 of 1 Kings and we see that Solomon is, is disobeying God. And we have to remember that when, when this text was originally written, it was just written as one cohesive scroll. There were no chapter breaks or anything like that. So just in the middle of the writer talking about Solomon's great wisdom and great accomplishments, he brings this up. He says, however, amidst all this goodness, there was one thing, one thing that Solomon didn't give to the Lord. Solomon loved many foreign women. A thousand, he had a thousand foreign women. 
in his palace. And this was directly disobedient to God's command. We heard the two times that God previously appeared to him, we heard God say, don't do this. Don't disobey my commands. But Solomon directly disobeys God here. And I think, I know at least for me, and I think for all of us, it's tempting for us to compartmentalize Solomon's life here. It's easy for us to say, okay, there was these years when Solomon did good, and then there's years that Solomon did bad, but it's not like Solomon was just living this perfect life, and then one day he turns around and there's a thousand foreign women in his palace. That's, that's just not, that's not realistic. This is a sin that was clearly happening amidst the splendor, amidst the glory. This was a sin that continued, that started maybe very, very small, but continued and grew over time. I mean, this is a picture of addiction. This is a picture of addiction. Because Solomon had everything. I mean, think about it. Solomon is following the Lord. His heart is postured towards God. He builds the temple, the thing that David wanted so badly to do, but God said, no, I'm going to let your son do this. Solomon gets to do this, and he sees the Shekinah glory. He sees the glory of God come and settle in this building that he had made. And then he sees fire come down from heaven and consume the, uh, the burnt offering and the sacrifices. I mean, Solomon gets to see some incredible things. Solomon is clearly succeeding, but that wasn't enough for him. One wife wasn't enough. He needed two. And then two wasn't enough. He needed three. And then four, and then five, and then six, and so on, and so on, and so on. In the beginning of Solomon's life, and reign over Israel. In the, in, the, in the building of the temple, we get to see that Solomon's heart was initially postured toward God and, and with humility and obedience out of wanting to live out God's will. But then in 1 Kings 11, here we see that there was part of Solomon's heart that wasn't postured toward God, that he was keeping away, that he wasn't being humble and obedient in this area of his life. And this poor posture of his heart ended up negatively affecting Solomon's ability to live for God. And therefore, God keeps his promise, his warning, and he tears the kingdom away from Solomon. And this is the moment, this moment is the gateway of Israel splitting into two. This is the moment when that the kingdom of Judah ends up splitting off from Israel. This moment is the gateway to that. Israel would never be the same again. In the life of Solomon, we see the goodness that comes when we posture our hearts with humility and obedience towards God and his will. I mean, we saw that in the beginning of his life, the beginning of his reign, and in building the temple. But we also see the detriment that comes when we posture our hearts away from God, when we disobey God through pride, through selfishness, when we follow our own sinful desires and turn away from the Father. And so, seeing these, this, taking a look at these few instances of Solomon's life, when we step back and look at the bigger picture here, when we look at Solomon's life at a whole, we see that the way that Solomon lived really mattered. It didn't just affect him, but it affected the entire kingdom of Israel. It, it, it affected the whole world in some senses. 
When we break it all down, the way Solomon lived was a matter of his heart and how his heart was postured towards God. And I believe that what was true for Solomon in his day is still true for us today. I believe that the way that we live today really matters. And I believe that when we break it down, the way we live comes down to a posture of our hearts towards God and his will. And I think for us, in reflecting on Solomon and reflecting on this sermon, it might be difficult to know exactly what the posture of our heart is and what does that actually even really mean. And I think the best way to look at the posture of our hearts is to think of it and to look at what are the appetites in our lives. What are the appetites that we have in our hearts? Because in Solomon's case, we see that initially when he began his reign and began his life, when he builds the temple, his appetite, his craving was to follow God and fulfill his will. But at some point in Solomon's life, we see that Solomon's appetite began to be replaced with a craving for foreign women. And this appetite for foreign women ended up taking over, overtaking his craving for following God. And therefore, it caused this appetite, this negative appetite caused the posture of his heart to change over time. And I think this baseline principle still applies for us today. That the appetite that led Solomon to have 700 wives and 300 concubines is no different than the appetites that lead us to sin. I read the story of Solomon, and I see myself in him. I see my appetite just for entertainment, for mindless entertainment. I see my appetite to eat unhealthily. I see my appetite to withdraw from life and just distract myself from the things that God wants me to do. I see my appetite to live for myself and to just follow in my own desires and ways. I see myself in Solomon. And now, is an appetite for entertainment bad at the root? Is an appetite for, for sugary food bad at its root? I mean, no. Appetites, for the most part, in and of themselves, are not evil. There are some appetites that are evil. If you have an appetite for murdering people, that is an evil appetite. You can't wet that appetite at all. There's no such thing as a little bit of murder. But most appetites are not evil in and of themselves. I mean, if you have an appetite for good food or a good book or a good show or a good game. I mean, God created good things and he created us with the ability to enjoy and get pleasure out of, out of, out of these good things. But these appetites become sinful when they become idols, when they turn our hearts away from God and his will in the same way that Solomon's heart turned away from God from this appetite. And what is God's will I mean, Jesus gives us a glimpse of that. He says the two most important commandments to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another. But our appetites become sinful when it takes our hearts away from God's will. That's what happened to Solomon. I mean, Solomon had it all. Solomon had everything he could ever want. And yet it wasn't enough. He wanted to quench this unquenchable appetite of his flesh but nothing could satisfy it. And that's the way it goes with the appetites of our flesh. We can never get enough to fully satisfy. Because when we put our appetites for things of this world above our appetites, our appetite for God and his will, we will never be satisfied. We'll always 
want more. But if we can set those appetites, those worldly, fleshly appetites aside and put our appetite for God and his will first, like it says in the scriptures, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be added to it. Like it says in Psalm 23, if we let the Lord be our shepherd, we'll have no want. We will lack nothing. And so church, what are our, our appetites this morning? What is your appetite this morning? What are the things that we find ourselves saying, just one more, just one more, just one more piece of candy, just one more episode, just one more cup of coffee, just one more, you fill in the blank for yourself. Again, many of these appetites are not sinful in and of themselves, but if they are being put before God, then there is a part of our hearts that is not postured towards God with humility and obedience. And therefore, there's a part of the way that we are living that is not aligned with God's will. And I think it's very appropriate this morning that we are looking at the life of Solomon during the season of Lent. Because in the 40 days of Lent, it's often a practice to give up something, to enter into a time of fasting. And one of the primary purposes of fasting is to, is to al- help realign our appetites. And they don't have to necessarily be bad appetites that we fast from. I've been reading uh, Scotty Smith's book, Everyday Prayers. And in it, he talks about one year during Lent, he decides to give up bread. And of course, bread is not evil. Um, Unless you're gluten-free, then bread is evil. But bread in and of itself is not an evil thing, obviously. But the idea behind Scotty Smith's fast was to give up bread as a way of acknowledging Jesus as the bread of life, the only thing that can satisfy. And he didn't think it'd be that hard to do because he's just giving up one item of food, right? But he says night one of the fast, he says there's a little piece of cornbread sitting in a styrofoam dinner box. And it's just, it's just looking up at him, just staring at him right in the face. And he says, I, choose to, I chose to deny myself one little thing with a world of other culinary options open to me, and yet my mouth waters, my taste buds engage, I want to chow down. Isn't this true for all of our appetites? Once we take something away, we crave it all the more. I mean, our appetites have power, and we realize that power most when we take that appetite away. And that's the idea of fasting. That's why we purposely cut something out of our lives for a set amount of time is so that we can help reorient our appetites, asking God to help reorient our appetites so that our appetites are primarily for him and his will. And I would encourage you, if you've identified an appetite in your life this morning, it doesn't have to be an evil thing. If you've identified an appetite that might be posturing your heart away from God, or maybe you sense that it's beginning to posture your heart away from God, I suggest that you try fasting from it. Intentionally cut that appetite out of your life for a set amount of time. Maybe you could do a day, you could do a week. I would recommend doing it for two weeks, because Easter is two weeks away from today. And the Lenten season, it's a great time to enter into it, because we are entering into a deeper physical season where we ain't, we're even more deeply engaging what Jesus did for us on the cross, and, and then we get to celebrate, we get to break the fast 
on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus rises from the dead. And as you fast, ask God to realign your appetites so that he and his glory always come first. For the last few years, Katie and I have entered into a progressive fast during Holy Week. And again, we have to enter into it with a posture of humility and obedience. Otherwise, otherwise there's nothing in it. Otherwise, we have, if our posture is bad, then there's no reason for us to fast. But if we can have the correct posture entering into this fast, it helps us enter into Good Friday, into Holy Saturday, when, when Jesus is in the tomb. It helps us into it in a, in a deeper, more physical way. And then we get to break the fast on Easter Sunday. And there's a sense we get to enter into and join in with that resurrection of Christ. We get to resurrect this appetite. And, and obviously, if it's a sinful appetite, we don't want to resurrect it. But if it's, if it's something good, we can resurrect it and celebrate, join in and celebrate with God and him rising Jesus from the dead. So I'd encourage you, if you're not already fasting for Lent, I'd encourage you to fast. Fat, try fasting from an appetite for the next two weeks. Now, I'll be honest with you. At the beginning of, at the beginning of Lent, I sort of haphazardly committed to, to fasting from YouTube. Um, I found that YouTube was, was you know, there's, YouTube is not an evil thing. There are some not good videos on YouTube, but for the most part, YouTube is not a bad thing. But the idea behind it was, I was, just, I was just always going to YouTube for distraction, or it was distracting me from my rhythm with God, my rhythm at work. And so I, I, I said, okay, I'm going to fast from YouTube. And so, you know, even yesterday, I was at home, I was on my phone watching a video, and Katie's like, are you watching a YouTube video? Kind of, you know, half-jokingly. And I was like, no, I'm watching a Facebook video. <laughs> very different, very different, Right? So clearly, clearly I am following the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. I am following the letter of the fast and not the spirit of the fast. And so my commitment to you and my commitment to the Lord is to, to, to commit to the spirit of that fast and to cut out all video from my life for the next two weeks. And that includes opening day baseball tomorrow, Red Sox start. That includes playoff basketball, Celtics. That includes playoff hockey, the Bruins. Man. It's going to be hard. But I'm committing, the idea is that I don't want this appetite, this, it's okay to be a sports fan, I don't want that appetite to be put ahead of God. And so I'm committing to you, I'm committing to you before the Lord that I, over the next two weeks, I will not look at video on the internet. I have to post some videos for sure, I have to post this sermon and next sermon, so I'm going I'm to post some videos, but it's the consuming of videos that I, I commit to not doing. So church, for us this morning, if we've identified, if we've been able to name an unhealthy appetite in your life, or maybe, maybe just an appetite that you sense kind of beginning to turn your heart away from God, I would encourage you over these next two weeks to cut that thing out, that appetite out of your life, to name it and then consider fasting from it for a set period of time. Because this morning, as we engage the life of Solomon, if Solomon taught us anything, man, it's that the way that we live matters. And that the way that we live is rooted in the posture of our heart. And that has, that has so much to do with our appetites in life. May we be a people, may we be a church that has an appetite for God and his will. To love him and to love his people above all else. Because that is our calling as disciples 
of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to continue the work you're doing in all of us. May it be here at Grace Lutheran Church as it is in heaven, God. May it be in our hearts as it is in heaven. Jesus, you were such a clear picture of having your appetites set, set so well. You fasted from food and water for 40 days. Your appetite was for your Father and your Father alone. And Jesus, I ask that you would give all of us here that same appetite. That we would put God, that we would put you first, we would put your will first in our lives. May that be true of us, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just in the weeks to come. May this be true for our entire lives. But it's only through your empowerment and by your grace, Spirit, and by your blood, Jesus, that we can do this. So we just ask for your help in realigning our appetites and your help in posturing our hearts to you. May we understand the way we live truly matters. So may we live for you and your glory alone. It's in your name, Jesus, and by your blood that we pray all these things. Amen.